0: We are currently going through the book of Genesis. For those of you who are here to, new here to Jacob's Well, uh, we do something we call expository preaching, which means we just go through the Bible. Uh, that means that we don't get to skip the parts that don't fit us like we would want to. We believe that all scripture is God breathed, is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And so we don't want to leave you void of any of those things that God has to share with you. So we're going through the book of Genesis, and the name of the series is Remnant of a Savior. And the reason why we call it that is because in Genesis 3.15, right after Adam and Eve sinned and fell, God made a promise to bring a Savior through the line of the woman. And God is faithful to his promise, and he carries that remnant, that generational remnant, through Noah uh, all the way through Jesus Christ, and we trace that. As God does that. And so we are in Genesis chapter 11. We're going to read verses 1 through 9. If you are in a red Bible, uh, it's on page 8 in the red Bible. If you don't have a Bible and you need a Bible, raise your hand and Andrew will grab you a Bible and bring it to you. Did everyone grab one? Okay, I forgot to mention that before. So page 8, we're reading Genesis chapter 11, verse 1 through 9. Before we dig into it, last week, uh, Pastor Ron spoke to us uh, regarding Genesis chapter 9 and 10. He read the genealogy for me, which I am very thankful. Uh, sometimes it reads like a Dr. Seuss book, and so I'm glad that he did that for me. But, but in that chapter, uh, you have God explaining how uh, the earth was populated after the flood. Only one family lived through the flood. It was Noah and his family, and they repopulated the earth. And so he explains that through generations, through Noah's sons. In the midst of that story is the story we're going to look at today, the Tower of Babel. It's not at the end of those generations. It's in the midst of them. And so that's what we're going to read today. Genesis chapter 11, verse 1 through 9. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had a brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. If you would keep your Bibles open as we go through it. Let's pray. God, your word is so good. It is better than anything we could think or imagine, God. Your grace is dripping from the scriptures. It's dripping from this text, Lord. God, pray that you would help our hearts to see your love and your goodness towards us because you are gracious, because you are merciful, because you are loving to people like us. We praise in Christ's name. Amen. <coughs> Growing up, uh, we used to play a game called King of the Hill. And uh, typically it would come about because I would be at one of my siblings' uh, uh, sporting events. And there would be me and a bunch of other kids and there'd be a pile of dirt. And that's really all that you need to play King of the Hill. And so we would go over and we'd play King of the Hill. And the goal of it was just what it said to be King of the Hill. And so somebody would be up on top of the, you know, the mud pit. And then the rest of us would get up there and we'd try to yank him off, throw him off, whatever we would do. we try to dethrone him so that we could be King of the Hill. And then everybody else would attack us and try to rip us off the, the, the mountain. And so, uh, that's how we played King of the Hill. Maybe you've played it before it's a fun game i I stopped uh because i'm old but it's a very good game many times we do that with god god is to be king of our lives he's to be king of the hill but many times we try to throw god off the hill we try to dethrone him and put ourselves in his place we do that when we pursue sin we say god we don't want your ways we want our ways Let me share with you a quick story of that. This week, my friend was sharing with me a story of how he came to faith in Christ. He said he would go away and he would go hunting. And when he would go hunting, there was this couple. And they would talk about spiritual things. And these people loved the Lord. They were very solid in their understanding of the Bible. They went to church regularly. And they were great encouragement to him. And they were pivotal to him trusting in Christ. But he was greatly discouraged because the woman had left the faith. She had rejected the church, and she had started a life on her own. As the story went along, more came out that the woman had actually left her husband. She had committed adultery, and she was running away from God. It's no surprise that she left the church, because if she was still in the church, Christ would have to be king of her life, and Christ would also have to be king of her marriage. And she didn't want any of that. And so she dethroned God, that she could make a life apart from God which is really no life at all. That's what we see here in this city of Babel. The people are trying to make a life work apart from God, which doesn't work. And so they do that by building a city and by building this tower. Really, there are two acts to this to this scripture, two, two scenes. The first is the rebellion of man, and the second is the response of God. And so those are the two things we're going to look at. First, we're going to look at, the rebellion of man, and then we're going to look at the response of God. And I think we will find a lot of things in this passage that apply to our own life. First, let's look at the at man's rebellion. Look with me, if you would, in verse 3. <coughs> Excuse me, I have a cough. <clears throat> and they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. As I mentioned, this city was named Babel. It was, the, it was part of Babylon, the great empire that was an enemy of God throughout the history of the Old Testament. And so when we read something like this, we naturally ask the question, man, this seems really unfair, you know, is it, is it bad to build a city? Is it bad to live in a city? Is it bad to build a tower? And the answer is, is no, except they were doing this expressly to be rebellious against God, expressly to build a life on their own, to build a life independent of God, self-sufficient from God. And the rebelliousness manifests itself in a couple of ways. And so we're going to look at those. First, man's rebellious comfort. They built this city to be comfortable. They built this city to disobey God. You may remember the creational mandate that God gives to Adam and Eve. Genesis 1, 28. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it. And then when God recreates the earth with Noah and the flood, God is so mindful of this mandate that he gives it again to Noah and to his family. And he says this, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Fill the earth. But what did the Babylonians say? What did the people on this land say? Look in verse four with me again, if you would. Come, let us build ourselves a city and then skip a little bit. Lest we be dispersed. Over the face of the whole earth. That was God's plan that they would be dispersed. And they said, we do not want to be dispersed. We want to huddle together because it is comfortable and it is easy. Again, there's no problem with the city, but they were doing it directly to oppose God. They knew the command of God and they decided, we don't want it. We want to do it our way. We want to huddle together. You know what's really funny? Throughout the Bible, God is is constantly telling his people to spread out. Uh, One way he does that uh, is through Christ. Before Christ ascends into heaven, he actually comes to the disciples in Acts 1, and he says to them, he says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witness in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And then the book of Acts goes on outlining this very verse that they would start in Judea, go to Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. But even as they received the Holy Spirit, that's not what the disciples did. The disciples huddled together. They they exercised this rebellious comfort to stay in the safe confines of relationships that they knew, in churches that they knew. But God allowed persecution to hit the church through Stephen. And it was like a stamp and it spread them out. And so God fulfilled this commission on their behalf. But rebelliously, they wanted to stay comfortable. They wanted to stay isolated. You know, this is a problem in the church. Obviously. It is so easy to get wrapped up in all the Christian genres of listening to Christian music, Christian books, hanging with your Christian friend, only having Christians over for dinner. There's a church, I love their motto. Their motto is, the church has left the building. Right? Not Elvis. The church has left the building. Right? We as a church should leave the building. We don't we don't just uh, seclude to the comfortable aspects of our life. We help fulfill God's command to scatter and to share his good news with the people around us, to fill the earth with his glory. This is actually very instrumental for how Jacob's Well is structured. You may or may not know this, but we don't have a lot of programs at night. We have community group, and that's it. And the reason is, is because we want you guys to be teaching your kids' soccer team. We want you to be helping with the band. We want you to be having your neighbors over for dinner. We don't want to bring you into the church and just seclude you from the rest of the world. But we want the church to leave the building and be a vital part of the community. And so we see here this rebellious comfort that they have, one that we can also associate with. <coughs> he also shows that they seek rebellious glory. Several times in scriptures, there is this plea and praise and aim of the Christians to bring glory to God. Uh, our, our confession, which is a uh, systematic doctrine, it, it tells you everything you know about different things from the Bible. It's not the word of God, but it's helpful. And one of the things that it does is it gives you a catechism, which is you ask these questions to find out really important answers from the Bible. And the very first question is this. What is the chief end of man? What is man's main purpose? What is your purpose? What is my purpose in life? And our purpose is to give glory to God and to enjoy Him forever. What a beautiful statement. I love that statement. To give glory to God, not to ourselves, and to enjoy Him forever. forever. This is God's intention for our lives. This is what we were created to do. But look again what the Babylonians say in verse 4. <coughs> They said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Why do they want to do this? And let us make a name for ourselves. Let us make a name for ourselves. Let us make fame for ourselves. Let us get glory for ourselves. This was what they wanted to do. They wanted to develop a culture that people would think much of them, not that people would think much of God. This was their intention. They wanted to be famous. They wanted their name to be well known. They wanted glory. I'm just glad that none of us struggle with that here today. <laughs> you know, it is, it is a, well, I'll share with you a very, uh, a very current situation. For me, in which this is constantly a battle for me. As many of you know, we are working to help plant a church in Appleton. Last week, I was actually in Colorado with Dan Breed, helping him to raise some support, uh, visiting the church that he's a part of. Uh, he's going to be coming, Lord willing, mid-December to help plant a church in Appleton. We're very excited about that. Uh, this, but a few weeks ago, a friend came to me and he said, "You know, I had pledged, I pledged this money to help start up Jacob's Well." But I want to take the rest of that, which is a large amount, and I want to give it to the Appleton Church plant. What do you think about that? And, you know, I have the little devil on one side and the an angel on the other, like, fighting it out, right? The Holy Spirit in my flesh. And I'm thinking, no, 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 let's take that money. Let's use it for Jacob's well to make Jacob's well bigger, you know, to spread our fame, to spread my fame. Let's do. We could buy a building, we could do all these things. But then God, through his Holy Spirit and grace, said, no, Dan, you know better than that. You see, it's not wrong if we build a building. But right now, God had called us to plant a church in Appleton. And statistically, throughout every single denomination, the most prolific way to extend God's fame, God's name, and God's kingdom is not by building a bigger church, but by planting churches. That is the most effective way to reach those who don't connect with the church, And so, you see, my battle was I want to extend my fame and not God's fame. But I know that we are called to extend God's fame through church planting. This is a constant battle no matter where you are. Maybe in your workplace. Maybe you have great sales and you tell everybody about what a good salesman you are. Or maybe you're great at sports or whatever it might be. You know, it's okay to share, hey, this is success in my life and rejoice praising God. But why do you share those things? Is it that you would receive fame? Or that God would receive fame, that God would receive glory. See, all of it, all of your life is for the glory of God so that you can enjoy him. And so we are to give glory to God. The last church I was at, Pastor Jim did a great job of modeling this to me. Every time we'd say, Pastor Jim, great sermon. Maybe you know what he would say. What would he say? Praise be to God, right? Glory be to God. Because God is the one who deserves his name to be exalted. You know, there is a there is a reality that might devastate you, but it's also glorious. If you by chance cured cancer, saved the state of Wisconsin, balanced the budget, four hundred years from now, now, nobody would know your name. Nobody would know your name. Probably. Unless they went to a museum and they saw it and they see your name. It's very limited here on earth. It goes forever in heaven. But God's name will exist 400 years from now. And it will be glorious. And so we have an opportunity to build the name and the fame of the God who will be saving and redeeming people 400 years from now. And so this is a great opportunity for us not to seek glory for ourselves, but to seek glory for God. Rebellious man is rebellious and seeking his comfort and seeking his own glory. And finally, in rebellious worship, the irony is that as people run away from God, they still feel the need to worship something uh, because we're created to worship. This is no different for the Babylonians. They wanted to build a temple, not just a tower—a temple to worship. The the archaeologists and scholars will almost all tell you that this was most likely something called a ziggurat. Okay, and we actually have a picture for up here for you of a ziggurat. That's a ziggurat, okay? And that is what they believe was the Tower of Babel. It was something similar to that. And as you can see, there are stairs that ascend all the way up to the building on the top. And what do you think that building on the top is? It's a shrine. It's a place where they were supposed to meet with God. It was their way of meeting God. They had to climb these stairs up into, as it says here, the heavens, right? So that they could have an encounter with God. And this is what worship looked like for them. You see, false worship has this one thing in common. No matter what it is, no matter what form it looks like, it is about what we do for God. That is false worship. False worship is how much I can fast, how much I can pray, how many steps I can climb, how much I can do so that God will accept me and love me. But true worship is a response out of what God has done for us. You know, tomorrow is, is Reformation Day. Today's Reformation Sunday. Martin Luther, as we mentioned, is one of the main figures of that. And one of the pivotal parts of his life was climbing the stairs. Uh, they're called holy stairs, the Sancta Scala. And there are 28 broad marble stairs in Rome. And what would happen is that he would go there and he would climb these stairs one at a time on his knees. And every time he would go up a stair, he would pray. And then he'd go to the next stair and pray again, next stair and pray again. And part of it was he had to purchase this piece of paper, and indulgence at the bottom, and then he'd go up and he pray. And now there's two different stories of what happened. One is that he got to the top and said, did it work? I have no idea. Did it work? The other story comes from his son, which says that in the middle of it, Luther recalled something from the book of Habakkuk, a verse that says the just shall live by faith. Either way, that's the conclusion that he came to, and he went to that passage in Romans and realized that our righteousness, our goodness, is not by anything that we do, but by what Christ has done on our behalf. You see, worship for Luther was transformed. Worship was about what he did for God, the stairs he climbed for God. It was about the ways that he would pray to God, the ways he would fast for God, the ways he would confess to God. But then his worship was transformed. The gospel came forth and he realized it isn't that I have to ascend to God, but that God has descended to me in Jesus Christ. He has come into my situation and no matter how broken and how messed up and how horrible I am, it is not based on my performance, but solely on the performance of Jesus Christ, who in his perfection took our sin upon himself at the cross and died for us, that we would give him our sin give him the punishment for our sin, and he would give us his righteousness. And so you see, when we gather here today on Sunday mornings to worship God, we do not gather to save the lost, to, to enrich the saved. Those things happen by God's grace. But we gather here for one reason, and that is to give the glory and praise to God that he deserves. You see, the primary audience of our worship this morning is not you. It's not me. The primary audience of our worship, of your worship, is God. That's what true worship looks like. The audience is God. And so you see this false worship creeping into them. And so we see man's rebellion popping up through his rebellious comfort, his rebellious comfort, and his rebellious worship. Now we see God's response to that. And this is amazing to see. (coughs) If you would look with me in verse 5. Of Genesis 11 says and the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built now there is sarcasm built into this passage you know we talked about the first rule of comedy is timing right God's timing here is perfect and his comedy is fantastic because what happens these men they're like we're going to build this amazing huge high tower right And everyone will see how good we are, how big we are, how great we are, how famous we are. And God's up there. Where's that tower at? Where'd it go? You know, it's like he's searching for a Lego or something. You know, it's kind of like, you know, you, you fly in an airplane over a major city and you're like, those are skyscrapers. God had to come down just to see it. And so God comes down. Verse six. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people. And they all have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. (coughs) God is not saying, yikes. He's not saying, do I have a formidable opponent? He's not scared that they're going to overthrow him. I mean, they created a tower. God created time, all right? God created the earth. God is not scared that they're going to overthrow him. There's a better chance that ants will overthrow us and that we could overthrow God. But what God is saying here is that he has seen that the wickedness that had started before the flood was continuing, that it was growing exponentially, and that man's sin would be continuous. And so God says, I need to create some sort of safety to prevent the wickedness of man from spreading throughout the entire earth. And so he does that in a single action in verse 7. And this is probably the most famous part of this story. Verse seven, he says, come, let us go down there, confuse their language and go down and there, confuse their language so that they may not understand one another. So the Lord dispersed them from over the face of the earth and they left off building this city in this single action. God confused the languages. He started the languages of the earth. And I can imagine what it was like. They were building the city, and then their languages were confused, and then they started doing charades to try to explain, you know, put this brick over in block 25 or whatever it is, you know, and they couldn't communicate it. They get frustrated, and they disperse over the earth. And so we see God's judgment in that he doesn't let them fulfill themselves by by getting the idol that they wanted. But we also see God's grace. We see God's grace because, first off, he helps them fulfill the command to to spread out over the earth right they didn't want to do it but he confused their languages and it meets the result this is such good news for us that god despite our sin god always accomplishes his purpose god always accomplishes his purpose this is such good news for a guy like me who often mess ups who often fails to say you know what god will still accomplish his purpose even through a guy like me that's what he did here They were rebellious, they were building a city, and God said, no you don't. (laughs) I am going to accomplish my purpose of filling the earth, and I will spread you out by confusing your language. And so it's a gift of grace, but the other way that we see God's grace is that God (coughs) confuses the languages (coughs) to restrain the wickedness of man. As he said here, there's no end to the wickedness that they would do. There's no end to the sin that they will go on if we leave them with one language. You know, we went out to Colorado last week, and if you go through any woods, any forest, there are these things called fire breaks, right, or fire roads. And the purpose of them is so that if a fire starts in one quadrant of the forest, it won't go over the road. It, it will stay there uh, in that quadrant. And so they can get there and they can fortify, make sure it doesn't cross over. And so that's a fire break. God uses our languages as a fire break that are wickedness and sin can't cross those language barriers, at least not as easy. There was an experiment. Some of you may have heard of it. It was a controversial experiment called the Milgram experiment. And the Milgram experiment was this guy who uh, he was trying to see if the Nazi Germany was just a wicked other type of people and that we were good, or if we would have done the same thing if we were in the same situation. He was trying to see if wickedness was just because of who they were or if this was in everyone. And so what he did is he would bring two people into a room and he would have a hat. And one of the people uh, was working for him and the other person didn't know that. And so the, the other person, the volunteer, was to draw something out of a hat and it would say that you were either the teacher or you are the learner. All right? And so they would pick it out and it always said teacher. And so they would go into this room in which they had these dials to adjust in order to, uh, to apply electricity to the person if they answered the question wrong. And so the other person would go in the other room. They weren't actually hooked up. It was a scam. But they were in that other room, and they would have them, with every wrong answer, Intensify the electricity. Now, they knew what it felt like because they were electrified at the minimal dosage. But they would constantly increase it and increase it and increase it to the point where the people on the other side were banging on the walls, crying, screaming about their heart problem. And and the, the conductor of the experiment would say, you must go on, they won't be hurt, there will no be, be no significant damage, you must go on. And they would continue to go and go and go and go to the point where that person would stop making sound. Uh, it messed with a lot of people so they no longer do it. But throughout cultures, throughout tongues, they found the same results. That people through peer pressure would kill one another. Now, how does that make sense here is that God sets up these fire breaks of languages to keep wicked and horrible ideas from spreading over the face of the earth. I mean, who would have known what would have happened if German was the language of the entire world in the time of World War II? The propaganda was so strong that it convinced a nation. Could it have convinced the world? But by God's grace, he breaks up the languages that that won't happen. He restrains wickedness by giving us Various languages and various cultures, and so we see God responds not only with judgment by confusing languages, but also with grace. That that we would di- they would disperse over the earth, and that sin would be restrained. I want to take a moment just to focus on that last part: that God confused the languages to restrain the wickedness of man, because that's really what Babel is about. But you see, that's not the end of the story. There is one time in human history in which God did not confuse the languages or keep the languages confused, but he actually united the languages. Maybe you know what story this is. After Jesus ascends to heaven, all the God-fearing Jews gather together from every tribe, tongue, and nation in one place for Pentecost. And then we read about that in Acts chapter 2, and I'm going to read a large portion of scripture here, but we're going to see that God doesn't does no longer keeps the languages dispersed, but he unifies them for a great purpose. Acts 2, verse 4. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Verse 8. How is it that each of us hears them In his own native language. And so at Babel, God confuses the languages to restrain sin. But now he is bringing the languages together. And the question is, why is God doing this? Why is God bringing the languages together? Why is it when one person speaks in Greek, a person in Aramaic understands them? Why does he do that? And it's because he has a message to share with the world. That it would spread out throughout the entire world as these people go back to their countries, go back to their homes that this message would go with him. And here it is. Verse 22. Men of Israel, right? Like sons of Scotland. (coughs) Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. So it was God's plan, not man's. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Verse 36. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart, as should we. And said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off. For all whom the Lord God will call. Verse 40. And you see why he combines the languages. With many other words he warned them and he pleaded with them. Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. And so why did God combine the languages? It was because the good news of Jesus Christ had come, and it was time for the world to hear about it. You know, at Pentecost, uh, excuse me, at the Tower of Babel, God confused the languages to create mass dispersion, right? It's kind of like a, a one of those uh, tear bombs that they throw into a into a crowd so that they'll disperse and separate wickedness. And so he, he does that at the Tower of Babel for mass dispersion. But then he unites the languages at Pentecost for mass conversion that people would know the good news of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are gracious, that you do not let us carry out our sin to its full extent, Lord, that you do not let us pursue idols, but that you restrain wickedness through language barriers, you restrain wickedness through government. We are so thankful that you are God and that we are not, that you have to come down to look at what we would take great pride in. Lord, you give us a great name in heaven. Our name is written in the book of life. And we praise you for that, God. We pray if there's anyone here that doesn't know you today, that they would place their trust in Jesus Christ. That they would know that there is no other worship, no other glory, and no other comfort that is worth it than the ones that come from you, God. We pray this by your grace and for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. On the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and he said...